We're continuing our series in Genesis. So Genesis chapter 8, and I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 12. So Genesis chapter 8 and starting in verse 1. Let's hear from God's word. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After forty days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But this time it did not return to him. If you could turn with me again to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 8, the great story of Noah. And I'll be continuing on in our reading. So that's uh, picking up the reading at verse 13 and through to 18. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out, together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Well, friends, as we take a closer look at God's word, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again that we can meet here this morning. And Father, we recognise that it is just a meeting, a group of people, if you don't meet with us. And so, Father, we pray now that by your Spirit you would do that, you would meet with us, uh, that you would reveal your wonderful word, Father, so that we might have a walk that is closer to you, that we might know the Lord Jesus, and Father, represent him in a world that is lost today. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. 
And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah. And friends, it's with those four short words that this entire epic story of judgment turns. Indeed, the ongoing existence of life itself hinges on this little phrase. For as we just recalled, the waters got unleashed from above and below, utterly wiped out and laid waste the entire earth. Everything is gone. Everything swallowed up and destroyed. Everything except for one thing. Noah's Ark. For 150 days, five long months, it drifted on this endless judgment sea and would have continued to do so if not for those four short words at the beginning of chapter 8. But as great and pivotal and history-changing these words are, nevertheless, they're strange to our ears, aren't they? God remembered Noah. Does that mean that he had forgotten him? Now, with the task of judgment now complete, the Lord of all had, had moved on to other things, such that Noah, the ark, and all those inside had somehow slipped his mind? Well, friends, all I can say is if God's mind was anything like mine, if his memory had blanks and glitches like ours, then that would be a distinct possibility, wouldn't it? But as we're not talking about us but him, well, we know that those first four words of chapter 8 are communicating something a little different, don't we? And that communication is this. Having utterly swamped the earth with water, God's mind and purpose now switches from what he determined to destroy to what he has determined to save. As such, the plight of Noah and all aboard his ark now comes into the divine frame. From now on, this is going to be a salvation story. Because God made such a promise to Noah and God is a promise-keeping, covenant-honouring God. Now that, friends, is what those four short words are communicating to us. And so now we have that communication nice and clear. Let's see how this remembering of Noah now plays out and what we can learn from it. So verse 1 in full, have another look at it. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind, a wind over the earth and the waters receded. And so having cleansed the world of wickedness, God now sets his mind on fulfilling his saving promise to Noah. 
And the means by which he is going to accomplish this, as we see right here, is by him sending a wind over the earth. Now, friends, as we read that, many a sceptic has responded, a wind, hey? Are we really meant to believe that a breeze, a gale, whatever it was, is actually going to get the job done here? I mean, good luck ever seeing land again, Noah, old mate. But friends, while that might be the sceptic's response, let's consider Noah's for a moment. Having first experienced the tumult and the craziness of those first 40 days, things then go quiet. Very, very quiet. Not a sound now is to be heard outside of that ark. A week goes by and then another And as the minutes, hours and days slowly tick by, it's hard to think what is worse, isn't it? The craziness and noise of the first 40 days or now the complete and utter eerie silence and calm. Now friends, speaking of God remembering, you can be sure during this long pause, many a prayer went up to him concerning this. And then perhaps one morning, Noah wakes up to something. Yep, there's a definite noise going on outside. A whistling sound around the edges of the ark. And it's not long before the entire vessel is on the move. Have they suddenly been hit by some random cold front? No. Noah knows full well every weather event since the closing of that ark's door has been divinely orchestrated. And not only that, but this sudden wind carried extra special significance that would have not been missed by Noah. For friends, the Hebrew word for wind is the exact same word for God's spirit, ruach. And Noah knew full well that ascent and blowing of God's ruach over the watery depths marked the beginning of God's great creation week. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. And now with the conditions almost as identical as back then, God's spirit has descended once more to bring life back to the earth. But friends, as Noah made that awesome connection, we have an even better one, don't we? A connection Greg Braid brought to us just last week. What was God's first sign that Jesus' great commission to bring life to dead man's souls was now underway? Well, let's hear it again from Luke's own pen, Acts chapter 2 and verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were staying. And friends, the rest, as they say, is history. A history of new life that we are now part of. And so this beautiful, divine, life-giving wind has begun to blow on Noah's ark signifying to all on board their salvation is at hand. And friends, this is confirmed in what Moses writes next. Have a look at it. 
Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And so God's life-giving, life-returning Ruach steadily, supernaturally brings the waters down. But as we read on, we see the role of this divine wind was not simply to dry things up, but to direct Noah's ark to a particular location. Verse 4, have a look at it. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So here's the scene. After 150 days, the receding waters have begun to reveal the high places on the earth. And with this being the case, Noah's Ark is divinely directed to settle on a particular range called the Mountains of Ararat. Now, this little geographical detail probably means very little to you. It certainly didn't mean much to me until I discovered that this particular mountain range overlooks the Mesopotamian plain. Now, why is that important? Because this plain has become known as the cradle of civilization. Not by Christians, mind you, but by secular archaeologists who in their search for the earliest signs of human habitation discovered it in the shadow of the very range that Noah's Ark came to rest. But friends, getting back to Noah, where he has gone and where he has stopped is a complete mystery to him. Because despite what those cartoon pictures portray, this ancient vessel doesn't have a fancy wraparound viewing deck. Now they're all closed up inside. As such, they are clueless as to their location and the conditions outside that ark. At this stage, all Noah knows is God has brought this vessel to a stop. But having done so, things go quiet again once more. And friends, this pause in proceedings, as we see in verse 6, drags on for well over a month. And as I reflected on this strange limbo period for Noah and his family during the week, although it's true we cannot relate to their physical conditions, their experience during this time is not completely alien to us. Because if you've been a Christian for a while, who has not been through a season when stranded is a good descriptor for how you feel? You've been travelling along well, felt God's guidance, doors are opening, there's direction and flow. And then for one reason or another, your ship bumps to a stop and things go quiet. How are we to respond in times like this? Well, let's get back to Noah and see how he responds. Verse 6, have a look. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark. 
And then having done so, he goes looking for a bird, doesn't he? Not the white one we all immediately think of, but a black one, a raven. And so out that little tiny porthole it goes. And friends, while we're not told why he sends that raven out, it's not rocket science, is it? Noah's looking for answers. He wants to know how habitable the conditions are out there. And so he chooses a bird that is strong, smart, and has a stomach that can digest just about anything. If any bird can eke out a living out there, a crow can. And so out it goes. And it doesn't return. So things are good for the raven. Okay, let's now do another little test, this time with a smaller bird, one that lives in the valleys, the lowlands, and depends on plants and seeds to survive. And so Noah opens that little window once more, and this time lets out a dove. Pick it up, verse 9. But the dove could find no place to set its feet, because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. And so, friends, we get this fascinating little story of Noah's bird experiments conducted by him to work out what's going on outside that ark. And through these experiments, Noah gets a pretty clear picture, doesn't he? Now, friends, I don't want to over-promise or over-apply Noah's actions here, but having said that, I don't want to simply pass over this section as if it's just an interesting kind of thing that he does with nothing to teach us, because I think it actually does. A stranded and unsure with no direct word from God about what's happening, Noah doesn't sit on his hands, does he? But he exercises his God-given faculties. And in so doing, God rewards him with answers. Now, friends, just like Noah, God has equipped us with a toolkit that can help us move forward when we feel stuck. He has given us his word. He has given us a brain to understand it and gifts and abilities to engage in our situation. And God wants us to open and use this toolkit as Noah did in his situation. Has your boat hit a snag? Listen to Jesus' advice on this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Now, friends, may Noah's example and Jesus' promise encourage us to prayerfully move and act when things go quiet for us. Because answers will come. 
And that little olive leaf in the dove's beak returned to Noah is such a beautiful picture of that truth. So Noah, having received the answers he's looking for after, he is now confident, isn't he, to make the next step. Have a look, verse 13. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. Now, friends, what exactly this covering was, we're not sure. But it seems Noah designed a section at the very top of his ark that could be removed when he knew it was safe to do so. And knowing it now was, off it comes. And friends, what a view must have hit Noah's eyes from high up on that mountain range. The washed, cleaned earth laid out before him, sprouting and flourishing with new life. A beautiful, brand new creation just waiting for him and his family to inhabit. But Noah's not moving yet. Because the call to leave the ark isn't Noah's call, but the true captain of this ship. And so Noah waits on him, doesn't he? And finally it comes, verse 15, have another look at it. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. And so out they came. You know, friends, it's pretty rare in a sermon when you come to the end of a passage and the visual it provides basically walks you straight into the application. But this passage is one of those moments Just a year ago, Noah lived on a dark, sin-ravaged, evil, spiralling, out-of-control world. Everything was warped. Everything was on edge. Everything distorted. This is where things wind up when the world walks away from God. Conditions we are rapidly returning to today. As Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. A coming that will once more see destruction. That will then give way to a picture similar to what hits Noah as he leaves that ark. Only so much better. A new heavens and a new earth plus no more sin to see it ever spoiled again. Now friends, what hit the eyes of the man God remembered provides a foretaste of what's coming for all the names God will remember on that future day. How do we know our name will be recalled when it arrives? How do we know we'll make it through the flames to the perfect paradise? Well, friends, let's consider the very first person who was promised this paradise. Turning to the scourged, beaten, humiliated man beside him, the one who is being relentlessly mocked by the crowd as a false king. Turning to Jesus, a thief, 
a hopeless, condemned sinner, recognising the truth of who Jesus was, is, grabbed his attention above that mocking crowd and then said to him those simple words, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Friends, if there was ever a perfect picture of biblical faith, a faith that saves, then this is it. Nothing to offer but a genuine recognition, a certain belief that Jesus is the means, the only means by which one can make it through the coming flames. And so he asks him, pleads with him to land him safe on the other side. Remember me. Friends, there's another worldwide judgment coming. And every day it gets closer. The purpose to cleanse once more the earth of rebellion and sin, but this time forever. The paradise Noah received after the flood is just a tiny taste of what's on the other side of the fire. The question is, when the flames subside, will your name be remembered, called out by God to enjoy it? You actually know the answer to that question. Because you know if you've come to Christ as the undeserving thief did and from the bottom of your heart, with all your heart, asked him to remember you. Friends, if you haven't made that simple, repentant, heartfelt plea to King Jesus... If you haven't heard his reply, the same beautiful answer he gave that thief, well, today is a good day, a great day to ask. Let's pray. Father, what a promise, what a scene um, you give us as we read of Noah walking from that ark onto the beautiful, renewed earth. And Father, what a promise you give us in Jesus that we will make it through the coming flames, not by anything we bring, for the thief could not bring anything, but through a simple plea, a heartfelt cry to be remembered because Jesus is the one who carries us through. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we recognise this morning that in many ways we can fall back on leaning on our own good works, our own resume to see us through those flames. But Father, thank you for the reminder this morning that it's Jesus' work, it's his salvation work that sees us through. Uh, Lord, we call on Jesus once more. We thank you for him, that he would be the one that we would hold on to, cling to, and him to us to see us through those flames. We thank you for the sure promise that he will through simple faith in him. We thank you for this wonderful reading and that wonderful reminder this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.